I believe that we have the capacity to welcome millions and millions of immigrants in a way, actually, that we can bring them as a brothers and sisters because they are going to save social security, among other things, right? <laughs> they are young people. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Gustavo Torres, a longtime leader in the immigrants' rights movement. Gustavo is executive director of a large Latino and immigrant organization with over 100,000 lifetime members called CASA. He has a very good story of how he came to that role and what he's learned along the way. If you're interested in immigrant rights and how to build and lead an important organization in the progressive space, you should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Gustavo Torres with CASA. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Gustavo, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I am the executive director of CASA and the president of CASA in Action. That is the political organization of CASA. I'm originally from Colombia, South America, arriving to this country back to 30 years ago. My DNA is an organizer. <laughs> I studied law in my country. I didn't finish, but I studied law and I have been working in CASA since I arrived to this country, initially as a community organizer and then as an executive director. How did you find the organization originally? The organization find me. I arrived to this country and my ex-wife now, she was a good friend of the previous executive director. And they communicate and say, I need an organizer. And my wife, ex-wife now say like, and I have an organizer for you. So that was the way how we match. Yeah. Had you done organizing in Colombia? Yeah, in Colombia and as well as in Central America. Before I arrived here, I lived in Central America for four years. I live in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and all of these organizing people, working with uh, different communities and providing technical assistance to different unions right over there in Central America during the very difficult time that to me was a very important experience during the 80s and 90s. Right. I, yeah, I bet you learned a lot from that. A lot. What were some of the things you did learn? Well, very important. The, the important thing was that I was, when I arrived here, I met a lot of people who I previously met on Central America. They become refugees while you were here. They were organizers, union leaders, all of those. Those people were fighting for dignity and justice. And I learned a lot from them about the structure, the strategies, the way how they did it. And they were very smart because they were in front of dictators. They were in front of army who were ready to kill them. And they were very smart to develop a strategy and save their lives. 
So I have been learning a lot and I learned enough from them on that regard. They must be pretty courageous people. Very courageous. That is the word that I'm using. Very courageous people. People who lost their families, people who lost kids, etc. But they still keep fighting and fighting for dignity and justice. And unfortunately, as you know, during the 80s, the U.S. policies put the situation even worse, right? With the contrast, with the paramilitary groups in El Salvador, in Guatemala. I mean, it was horrendous. The Reagan administration policies was horrendous. Very clear, destroying societies. So yeah, I learned all of that experience. What made you decide to come here? That was another, not my choice decision, to be honest with you at the beginning. Uh, my ex-wife, that is the reason why I mentioned my ex-wife. I met her in Central America. She used to be the executive director of a nonprofit organization in reproductive health. I met her right over there. She was a U.S. citizen. And one day she told me like, I want to finish my master in public health at Hopkins University. And I said, what the hell is that? What is Hopkins? How you eat that? Anyway, and I said, like, let's go and do it. It's going to be a year and a half, and then we return to Central America. 30 years, I'm still I'm here, waiting where we are going to return to Central America. Did she finish the degree? Of course she did. <laughs> of course she did. But we got separated after seven years. Got it. I'm sorry about that. No, it's fine. It was a good, good, good separation agreement. Yeah. So tell me about that. So you got introduced to CASA. You start working as an organizer. What was the work like here? How was it different and what were you doing? It was not totally different because it was pretty much the same issue of fighting for workers' rights. And the additional component of that was also to fight for immigrant rights. Because when they hired me right here in CASA as community organizing, I have two tasks. Make sure that the day labor have a decent salaries and a good place to find jobs and be trained. And second one, fight for TPS, which means temporarily protected status for the refugees that recently arrived from Central America. That was my two assignments from my executive director. Very pleased to tell you that we accomplished that. Not only me, but a group of organizers and other people at the national level. We accomplished a location for day labor. We increased the minimum wage. We organized a huge movement of day labor. Now is the national immigrant and national day labor coalition. Network coalition is very powerful, totally separated of CASA, but we help to develop this organization. And we won TPS during the Clinton administration. So we are very happy about that. What was the organization like back then? I've read that it's gotten quite a bit bigger since then. Yeah, a little bigger. We have four people actually, including me, myself, during that time and during the 90s. And now we have around like 200 people. And when we are in elections, we arrive to around 500 people uh, in a year. Uh, focus in different states. And can you sort of trace that evolution over time a little bit? Absolutely. It is a beautiful experience because it's related with how our community have been growing all around the nation. So as our community growing, our organization keep growing and growing. So I remember when we started during the to work, we were pretty much providing clothing, uh, food, we provide some kind of employment immigration, right? And as it for probably 150 day labels. 
but then the organization keep growing and growing in Maryland, in Virginia, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, and all around the nation, right? I remember in 1990, when I was here, 20 million Latinos can vote. And now we have like 57 million who can do that, right? The question is how many of them vote? And that is another challenge, right? So growing tremendously. So my board of directors make a decision that we need to follow up our community where they are. And that is the reason why we keep expanding. Initially in Maryland, in different counties, in Montgomery, Prince George, Baltimore, and around all of these counties where the Latino community and immigrant communities, and then in another different states, in Virginia, Pennsylvania, Georgia, etc. One very important element from this was that we started to organize and provide services not only to Central Americans, but all Latinos and many, many people from Africa, working class African Americans, because they started to come to our centers. So we become a multicultural and multilingual organization. Were you an English speaker when you arrived? No, zero. Yeah. I only That's, say hello. That is quite a challenge to show up in another country and organize in a language that is obviously spoken quite a bit, but it's not the majority language of the United States. But can I tell you something? I feel very lucky and fortunate because I arrived with documentation to this country. And that gave me some heads up if you compare with the rest of my members and community who come undocumented, fighting, you know, their lives right over there and then come here so discriminated because they don't have any documentation. So yes, the language is an issue. Absolutely. It's an issue. But when you are undocumented, it's even worse. Your citizenship came through the marriage? Yes, yeah. correct. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Over time, somehow you moved from organizer to the executive director. How does that happen? That was in 1994. The previous executive director made a decision to leave, uh, to do another different professional responsibilities. And she asked me to apply for the position uh, and recommend me to the board of directors. The board of directors interviewed me and interviewed another two, three candidates. And the board of directors selected me to be the executive director with no experience, by the way, zero experience to be an executive director. Remember, I was an organizer and I studied law in my country, but that's it, right? I actually, let me back a little bit. In Colombia, in addition to being an organizer, I also have a, a taverna, like a, a little bar where we have like music and some kind of talks about political talks about different issues, progressive issues, you know, m music from... Latin America, progressive music from Cuba, from Central America, etc. So that is kind of my, before I become the executive director, was my employment experience, right? Run a bar and be an organizer. So I really appreciate the trust from my board when they say, but we want to give the opportunity to you, right? And I take it. What did you tell them in that interview that was so persuasive? <laughs> Pretty much what I told her is what I am telling you, that I didn't have the experience, but I had the guts to be able to move forward with this organization that I have, that I believe that our, our community was in a very, very tough position. And it's very important that we know only, and I emphasize that because I, to me, because my experience that was not only providing services, but also organize the community. And I think they bought that. The people feel that providing services was not enough 
for our community, that we need to organize and build power. And, and that was part of the mission that I sell to them and they accepted. And that is, that I believe that that is the reason why they hired me. And they have kept you on for what is now a pretty long time. So you must be pretty good at it. What, it doesn't, my experience is that leadership, management, that kind of role, you don't start out as good at it as you become over time with experience and effort and self-improvement and all those things. What was it like at the beginning and what did you find yourself having to work on to be good at it? I think I was very lucky, very, very lucky to have amazing mentors. And I have two mentors that I went to very quickly. Number one was the first president, board president that I had. She was the first Latina delegate in Maryland. Her name was Anasol Gutierrez, delegate Anasol Gutierrez. She was amazing. She with a lot of experience in this country. She was manager. She was so very powerful, educating me about management. So I connect that kind of expertise with my expertise as a community organizer. And then probably the next step and the most important was, was with the former chair of the Democratic Party, who also was the, my board president, Tom Perez. So he was amazing. He was with, with me for like 10 years, working with me, coaching me, uh, working together, develop a strategic plan. So it was a really great experience. So I, I was very lucky. And that is the reason why when I hire somebody in this key position, I always try to win a coach because I will tell you, I didn't have the formal experience as a manager, but I have the extraordinary opportunity to be coached by great people. And of course, I went to different trainings all around the nation, like the Rodwood Institute and all the different very powerful trainings, right? But that relationship that I built with my coach was just unbelievable. That helped me to build this organization with the rest of the team. I just want to emphasize it's not only me that played all day. The rest of the team that I brought was an is amazing team. I don't know Tom. I obviously know him by reputation. What is he like as a person? What made him so good as a coach? I describe him as a, my brother. And I don't know if he's my big or my little brother, actually, because we are the same age. He's brilliant. He's great. He's a civil rights attorney. He's really people who care about the working class. And what I really love for him is that when, when he was the, my board president, he didn't speak a good Spanish, honestly, like a little tiny. And he improved his Spanish tremendously to communicate with day laborers, to communicate with domestic workers, to communicate with tenants. And it was so very beautiful to see him with his roots as, he, as an immigrant you know, he bring that roots back to him again because he was mostly like, honestly, a gringo, right? In all of his culture, right? But Casa, I believe that Casa brought him again, his culture. And it was so very powerful to see him working with the low income, with work, working class communities. I mean, during the time that you've been running this organization, we've sort of had this frustratingly close brush with federal immigration reform a couple of times where it really looked like we might make some substantial changes and then get disappointed. Tell me about how you viewed at least the federal politics. I know you're dealing a lot with state stuff, but how did you see that from your perspective? 
We also deal a lot with the federal, actually. We played a major role in all of this potential immigration legislation that unfortunately didn't pass. And, and I believe, like, I want to go back to President Obama, who I respect and love tremendously, but I believe that he prioritized other issues rather than immigration. And when I refer to other issues, for instance, Obamacare, which was great, but not for undocumented immigrants, right? He was very clear, not for them, everybody, but not for them, right? So he prioritized on issues. And that is the reason why we didn't win immigration reform. I mean, again, we have Republicans who hate us, who are racist, who we never are going to win the additional, you know, votes that we need to win. But I think that President Obama could play a more aggressive role, if I can use that word, to uh, win immigration reform. And I think that he did it. I mean, at the end, we need to force him to pass DACA for the dreamers. But it was because we forced him through a very different strategies, mobilizing civil disobedience, meeting with him, presenting like a letter from 300 professors from Harvard and other areas that he has the power to all of these strategies that we use. Finally, we convinced him because he politically realized that was a good opportunity to him. That is President Obama. That is him, right? With President Bush, actually, to be very frank and be very honest, I think that he has more affinity with Latinos because he came from Texas and he understood the Latino culture than any other Republican, than any other Republican. Of course, that we, he was engaged in killing millions of people around the world, right? Right, that focus on, on immigration. But that was another frustration. We thought that with him, we can accomplish that because again, the affinity with Latinos, but right that he decided to focus in Iraq and Afghanistan and as you know, this horrendous world that we develop in countries, destroying countries, right? So that is kind of the experience that we have in immigration. And with this administration happened the same thing, right? Like President Biden, with Trump, don't even talk about, he feels that all of us are criminals, right? But with President Biden, he promised that he's going to deliver immigration reform. The reality that he didn't invest a lot either in these two years. And I don't expect nothing to happen in the next two years. I think he had quite a bit of immigration in big bills that didn't make it through without being cut down quite a bit, right? Absolutely. I think that, yeah, but not with the energy and the strategy and the passion that need to be done to accomplish. I, I feel like there's been for a long time in our history, two threads in attitudes towards immigration or immigrants. One is honoring people's variety of origins. We're a nation of immigrants. We are melting pot. We think highly of the talents that come here. And the other is much more negative. We demonize immigrants. We think of each new kind of group coming as somehow less than human, distressing view of of immigration. It feels like under Trump, the second view kind of got picked up and waved around. Where do you think we are in that balance in our views on immigration as a country? 
But now, do you know that that is the history of this country, right? Yeah. I mean, you go to the Chinese. Uh, Chinese Exclusion out. Act and the yellow peril. We had a million things where, where that thread that we have of nativism dominates. But sometimes we open the doors more and liberalize the laws. And we've obviously allowed the country to diversify a great deal over time. So it's, it, I mean, we, it is a mixed country for that. It is, absolutely. It's a mixed country. And, and we always describe that as like, it's around like, you know, 40% of the country, they don't care or they don't put any attention to. It's an other 20% that is so radical, very anti-immigrant, very gross and the way how they treat me and the community. And it's another 20% who are very pro-immigrant. So it's like, so we need to win this 40%, a good chunk of people. And that is the reason why I believe that the only way how we are going to pass immigration reform is that when we bring the two parties together, and I think that it's going to be very, very difficult to accomplish that, at least for the next few years. As long as the Republican Party has sort of an anti-immigrant core, it's going to be hard. Yeah. I mean, you see, I mean, we have 50 Dems in the Senate. From these 50, we have 49 committed to pass immigrants, meaning 99, 99% of the party. Let me repeat it again. 99% of the party from the Democratic Party is committed to immigration reform. They said one, probably two, but one. That's 98%, but I'll give you that. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> give me that 98%. In the Republican Party, we have probably, right now, probably like the 2%, 5%. You know what I mean? So that is kind of the big challenge that we are facing, right? It's so very, very difficult because they are so radicalized. And actually, what concerns me, to be honest with you, Nat, is that it's some Latinos who are moving to that party, even that they know that they are very anti-immigrant and very anti-Latino. And I'm like, I'm questioning why. I mean, I have some explanation to why, but that concerns me. And we have a lot of work to do to make sure that it's not happening as the Republican Party really wanted to make sure that Latinos are moving to the party. I know that it's a bit of a cipher to a lot of people. It's perplexing why there is that movement. What is your theory? I think that it's two or three different theories that I have. Number one, I'm going to start taking responsibilities. I think that we need to organize better our community. We need to be very clear with them. When we speak sometimes on behalf of the Democratic Party, we need to be very honest because sometimes the Democratic Party do not deliver to our community. So that is number one. So we need to be careful about, we really, really are reaching out the community in a very respectful way because that, those people are very smart. And sometimes we just come and say, you need to vote from them and because the Republican is going to eat your babies, et cetera, right? Like, I think that that is wrong. We need to be honest in our approach. That is number one. Number two, I think that the, the, the Republican Party have been very smart in reaching out, in particular in Florida, as well as in Texas. They're putting the, effort into it. Oh, yeah. And they're investing a lot of money in bilingual. They are using tremendously the 
socialism, communism, right, tremendously, because there's many people coming from Cuba, from Venezuela, from Colombia, right? All of those people are radicalized in their country of origin about communism, and they have been using and connecting that with the Democratic Party very effectively in Spanish. So well communication uh, that I just want to put one example. One of the ultra-right leaders who are used to be very popular in my country, used to be the, the president of Colombia, Alvaro Uribe, he's an ultra-right. They brought him to Miami in the elections uh, with Trump to convince the Colombians and Cubans that the Democratic Party was a communist party. And let me tell you, he convinced a lot of people. So that is the kind of thing that they have been doing in Spanish, very well, very well articulated, very, very good strategy. And I think that sometimes we don't put attention to that. Sometimes we feel like because you are Latino, Latina, Latine, now you are them. That is not true. And I don't want that people take us for granted. We have to earn the vote of the Latinos and Latinas and Latinas. It's so very, very important. We have to do it. And I think that we are not doing that. There are a lot of organizations that are in politics that have Latino bases that are concerned with that community. How does yours fit in among the other organizations that are working for similar goals? Well, we, we always work in collaboration with many people, with a lot of people. We believe that it's so very important that we work together. I mean, it's the only way how we are going to make a difference. So we make sure that we coordinate the different turf. Let, just, let me put one example. Another extraordinary organization called Made the Road. They are in Nevada, in, in New York, in, in, in Pennsylvania, etc. So we meet on a regular basis to develop a strategy. And, and we say, in, in Pennsylvania, you know what? We are going to take Lancaster, Harrisburg, York, Baltimore. You take the other area. And, and it's, it's worked beautifully because we are in the same page. We communicate. We make sure that, that the turf is not the same one. We want to maximize our efforts and our capacity. So yes, we collaborate with a lot of different organizations who, who believe that they are also Latino and immigrant organizations. So your two organizations, mainly, I think, for tax reasons, like everybody else, what, what are the main programs you run? What are the main things that you do? With both, with CASA and CASA in Action, we build power but we provide a lot of services to our community, employment, workforce development, English classes, immigration assistance, health. We also help people to become U.S. citizens in a regular basis. So all of those services are for our members. But in addition to that, as I mentioned, we have a very strong organizing component. We have around 50 organizers all around the nation to make sure that we build power, that we educate our community. We use, and our theory is popular education. I don't know if you are familiar with Popular education is a very participatory, very progressive education from Latin America. It used to be a, a professor in Harvard, but also he's from Brazil, Pablo Freire, who educate us about popular education and how important it is. So yeah, so that is what we're doing. We organize, and of course, we do all the electoral work. Is there a Republican version of you? like a similar organization that works on the other side? I hope no. <laughs> you haven't run into one. It is one organization, I think, that it called Libre, who try to replicate what we do. But they are mostly, as of today, mostly focused on, on uh, uh, electoral work. 
what the Republicans are doing right now, Nat, is that they are mobilizing the Latino evangelical churches. And they can play the role because, you know, a lot of Latinos become evangelical. So they started to provide a lot of services and register people to vote at the same time. So they are like, they are learning to use that kind of institutions to bring the Latino voters. That makes sense. You earlier meant, uh, referenced TPS, temporary protected status. You said that you won that with other people during Clinton. How has that changed over time? Did Trump change it? How well is that working? So the TPS, as you know, is a temporarily protect, protection status, legal status for people who suffer different catas- natural catastrophes in the country of origin or civil wars, etc. right? So the Congress provide all the power and pass a legislation to tell the president, you have the power to make a decision to what countries you are going to provide TPS. It was during the 90s and it still is a law, right? So have been, the, the situation that has been changed right now is that Trump make a decision that TPS is no longer necessary for many countries and eliminate the TPS. So we challenge him in court and we say, no, the conditions in different jurisdictions in different countries are not changing or have been changing, but now it's worse because the political situation, the catastrophe, et cetera, right? So the lawsuit was going on and on. He was being defeated. And then the president of President Biden took that responsibility. He started to expand TPS to another different countries. And now we are negotiating with him about what is going to happen with Central America, right? With El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, right? Who still had this TPS for a long, long time ago. So we hope that we reach an agreement. So far we are stuck. So far we are not. But I hope that we reach an agreement and he keep expanding the TPS for people. We are developing a huge campaign. CASA is taking the lead as a national level with other different organizations to make sure that we are going to force the administration to do the right thing in terms of TPS to other different countries that are in trouble. I guess my own view is that if people come here, they should be welcomed and integrated and treated as, you know, brothers and sisters. But also, I guess, that except everybody in the world, we have to make some limit at some point. How do you think about that balance and how and what do you think the policy should be kind of at a high level? No, let me tell you one example. During the uh, 70s and 80s, around 6 million Colombians become refugees and immigrants in Venezuela, okay? During the 70s and 80s. And now is the another way around. We have in Colombia around 2.5 million refugees and immigrants from Venezuela to the political and economic situation in Venezuela. So we can hold that many people right here, the U.S. And we are only like around 40 million people. The U.S. have like around 350 million people and we are desperate for immigrants. I believe that we have the capacity to welcome millions and millions of immigrants in a way actually that we can bring them as a brothers and sisters because they are going to save social security among other things, right? <laughs> they are young people. 
But we are not doing that because we are scared. We are scared because what we described at the beginning, right? It's our history, right? That some people don't like immigrants, other people like it. So we are stuck. But we have the capacity to welcome so many people, so many people. And of course that we need to regulate. I don't advocate for open borders right now, right? But I think that we can welcome so many million people to this country without no problem. Yeah. Where do you want to take your organization into the future? What needs to be improved? What needs to be expanded? What's the vision? Our board of directors and our staff, we are going to embark in our next five, 10 years strategy plan beginning actually in a month and a half from now. It's a perfect timing. So we are going to evaluate what we are going to do with CASA. But I will tell you already that we are going to become a national organization uh, with a membership. Right now, actually, we have members in around 46 different states and the country of Puerto Rico. So we are very pleased about this. But but we are not there yet to fully become a national organization. So I'm very sure that the board is going to approve for us to invest a lot of millions of dollars to become a national organization, to make sure that we are going to keep organizing people, not only in the state that we are, but in all critical states. I will, I will mention North Carolina. I will mention right now South Carolina. I will mention Texas. I will mention other different states that I'm very sure that we are going to expand to keep building power because we believe that that is the only way how we are going to change the situation that we are facing right now in terms of immigration. And I forgot to mention another piece that are so essential for our members, Nathan, is the climate, climate change, climate justice is so very important because our members believe that, and it's true, many of them are right here already do the catastrophe in our countries because the climate change. So it's so very important that we also focus on that. So we are going to invest a lot of time, energy, and monies to become a national organization in the next five to 10 years. Who funds your organization? Our members, very, very important, played a very, very important role. I think that is $1 million, $2 million from our members. That for us is so very, very important. And we are going to keep growing that, that particular piece of the pie is very important for us because give a lot of independence and give a lot of authority to make decisions, right? But also we receive funding from the private sector, from different foundations who support us. We have contract with the local government to provide the services that we provide to our members. Our budget is around like $23 million right now. How would you characterize your relationship with the Biden administration? You mentioned that you're negotiating with them. You mentioned that you need to sometimes put pressure on to become a priority. How, how would you characterize it currently? A decent relationship, is it? I would say that we are in good terms in terms of the conversation, but we are not super happy about the way how dealing immigration, which is a top priority for our organization. We welcome, by the way, the investment in climate justice. Now we want to hold the administration accountable to make sure that they are going to invest on people of color, on indigenous people, on Latinos, on black people. It's so very important for us. So we, we want to know where the money is going to. The, the previous administration and potentially the next Republican administration are likely to be far worse for immigration, for immigrant communities. How does 
that affect your plans for this period before the next presidential election? Obviously, it's going to make so much of a difference if we keep a Democrat in power versus allow a Republican to govern. Nat, I'm going to speak as a cast in action here, okay, to make sure that we are not going to be in trouble. <laughs> yes. I'm asking you only in, with your CASA and action hat on that question. I, I will tell you, we are going to do everything that is in our power to make sure that a Republican Party is not going to come back to the White House. We are going to do whatever we can, whatever is possible in terms of organizing investment, moving to another different state, whatever is necessary to make sure that those people don't return to the White House. What sort of things would be on that list? Register Latinos and immigrants to vote is so very important. Helping, we have around 8.5 million Latinos who are ready to become US citizens. And we are not investing a lot on them to be able to become US citizens. I guarantee you that when we register those people to become U.S. citizens and then register to vote, at least 80 to 85% are going to vote correctly, are going to vote right, or actually are going to vote left. So just want to tell you that I truly believe that. They are like a new generation who really, really cares about this country and this democracy. So that is one. So helping people to become U.S. citizen, citizen register to vote, make sure that we're knocking doors is so essential. We're planning to knock probably a million doors in our communities, because it's the only way how we are making the difference when we listen to our community. And we don't want to do it in the last two months of the election, because that is what happened. And that is the history that we have, like, that we started to receive funding from people to, hey, it's time for you to go and knocking doors. Those people need to vote. And you know what? For two years, we ignored them. That is what happened. And that is wrong. Our strategy must be organizing people from the beginning, listen to people from the beginning, understand what is their concerns, and go back to them several times before the elections. That is the way how we are going to win their vote. It's the only way how we are going to do it. And of course, utilizing the social media. Of course, utilizing the media is so very important, but that is the, before we need to organize, before we need to listen to them, and then invest in the social media. I, I suspect that you'd agree that it's a challenging time just for the democracy in the United States and for the democratic institutions. When we poll people in this country now, the, the faith in that system of government has dropped a lot. Where does it stand in the immigrant community? Is cultivating that interest in that kind of process important? Should we only be focusing on sort of kitchen table economic issues? Should we be worrying about the politics? And what does where people have come from, how does that play into it? Yeah, now that is a really, really important question. Remember that many of the people who arrived to this country is due to the lack of democracy unfortunately, in many of our countries, right? I mean, you see many, many people who, who are already over here is because they feel like, well, I saved my life. I mean, I see a lot of Colombians who 
are right over here now because they saved their life. The paramilitary groups, the guerrillas were about to kill them, right? So they value, we value tremendously the democracy in this country. We definitely believe that it's so very important that we protect and fight for the democracy. And the only way how we are going to protect and fight the democracy of this country is to make sure that the Republican Party never but never go back to the White House but in power because they don't believe on that. They demonstrate several times that they don't believe on that. And that is part of the education with our families. In addition to, to uh, working these economic issues, in addition to working these important issues about climate change, etc., democracy is so very essential. It's so very important. And we need to show to our community how important it is that, by the way, I can talk to you all of this and they are not going to kill me because I speak with If I talk the way how I'm speaking right now in my country, probably I have been killed a long time ago. So that is a very specific example of how important is the democracy for Latinos and for immigrants. What are other critical issues, do you think, for the people that you serve and work with? Let me tell you, at the local level, our members make a decision that healthcare is a very important priority. So in Maryland, just one put one example with the new governor, he committed to pass healthcare for all, regardless of the immigration status. At the national level, in addition to immigration, I mentioned to you, climate justice is the second top priority of our members, but also the issue of healthcare, the issue of housing, the issue of education, is so very, very important. So we have so many issues. You mentioned at the beginning, right now we are in a mixed neighborhoods and we face the same challenges that other communities face, working class communities face in this nation. You've been doing this for a bunch of years, as we've discussed. And, uh, you know, with the experience you have, I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of options for things to do. Why do you keep at it? Why are you still running this organization? How are you feeling? Are you burnt out? What are you thinking going forward for yourself? I'm not. I'm not burnt out because I love what I'm doing. When I come here to my office and I see our members, that they used to be victims and now they become fighters, that give me a huge energy, give me like the passion that I needed. Of course, that internally in our organization, we have been working in a transition, right? Because we need to recognize that we need to be ready. So we have been working on preparing new leaders to preparing new people who can take the lead in any moment in the organization. I feel like so with a lot of energy to keep fighting for dignity and for justice for our communities. What else should I have asked you that I haven't? The another important thing that you should ask me is like, what happened with the youth Latinos? Do you mean in the midterms? Well, in the midterms, but in general, I mean like the, that the new generation. What is happening with the newest generation? Thank you for the question. <laughs> I, uh, no, I think that it's a lot of hope because the new generation, they are people who have been learning from the parents and also, honestly, when this society have been told that we need to care about other very important issues that in the past our parents didn't care about, like the climate change. Right now, the, young, the new generation, the Latino and immigrant new generation really cares about that issue. Latino and new generation care about abortion. That was another issue that right now people feel like, what? What do you mean? What do you mean that somebody is going to decide about my body? So, I mean, learning that from our young people is so cool to hear that, that they are not going to tolerate that kind of thing. So 
I am very hopeful with the new generation. You think they're more progressive than the older generation? I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Do you think that'll stay as they get older? Sometimes it doesn't in different communities. No, please don't take it for granted any any communities. And that is part of the challenge. You cannot take for granted the white community or the Latino, African-American, Asian community. Yes, they are progressive right now, but if you just say like, they are going to be progressive forever. Hey, no, it's not going to happen. It's our responsibility to organize, 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 educate, educate, educate this generation. The beauty is that we, they have the right approach, but if we don't work on that, if we don't keep working on this, we can lose them. So I think that is very important. I've heard the argument that one of the ways that the Republicans have made inroads in the immigrant community is by pushing the idea, which I probably agree with, that hard work should be honored in this country and that people can move up on their own accord, you know, through their own efforts, which is true in many cases. And they oppose that to what they might call Democrats wanting to give things for free to people. I think we need to do things that are, that are both that are community based and where we take care of each other. And we ought to allow the incentives of hard work to be rewarded. Do you think that that has been a area where Democrats maybe are not getting the messaging right or the policy right? Or do you disagree with that general thrust of argument? And, and now do you see the hypocrisy of this statement from the Republicans, right? They provide a lot of taxes free of anything to the big corporations, right? Like billions and trillions, right? And they say nothing about that, right? But but yes, I mean, the issue- I mean, if you give a business uh, $2 million, that's okay. If you give a person 1000 there's something wrong with it. Yeah, exactly. I understand that. That is yeah. what I said about that, right? Like hey, $2 million because you are going to provide jobs, supposedly, right? When you give $2 million, right? But if you give $1,000 to somebody to pay the rent, it's almost a crime. But it does seem to have some, I don't know, messaging power. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But you know what? Totally right. Our community is here to work really hard, but at the same time, they recognize how important it is to fight for that kind of social services to make sure that how I'm going to support my community and how I'm going to support the people around me is so very, very important for our community. Well, and I, I, I am going to challenge about this working hard because I think that is not working hard. I always believe that we need to change the tone about it's working smart because you can work like 20 hours a day working hard and making 720 per hour, right? So you are going to kill yourself working hard and don't making even the money to help in your family, right? So I think that we need to work smart. That means that people need to get much better salary, $15 per hour, right? We need to fight for this. And we have a huge support from the Latino and immigrant community when we speak in that tone, when we say like, and we make sure that you deserve, right? That makes 70, 20 to make $15 per hour. You deserve to have health insurance. Although yes, go ahead and work hard, but you deserve to have these kind of things. So people understand this. So absolutely, that is part of our challenge. That is the reason why I mentioned that don't take it for granted that people are going to be progressive forever. No, we need to educate and organize our community about all of those issues. 
I mean, it can be a pretty frustrating time politically right now. I find myself discouraged on many days and maybe a little less so today. But what gives you the most hope about progress going forward? I will say the way how I see our members change when they are right to our organization as a victim. And after we organize them, they become fighters. Give me hope when I see black and brown communities working together. Give me hope when I see the young people with a lot of energy saying that they are going to fight back. Give me hope when I see this great diversity of LGBTQ communities working with the black community, with the Latino community together. That is what give me hope when I see these young people who now are going to be in Congress, right? The Cuban American from Florida who won the election, 25 years old, fighting for dignity and for justice. That is the energy that give me some hope to me. Well, I do like to hear that. It's always helpful to have a dose of hope. I appreciate your time today, Gustavo. Is there anything Thank else you. you want to say? No, I think that is it. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity to share Casa's experience, Casa's vision, and, and my own vision. So I really appreciate that. Great to talk to you. That was Gustavo Torres. He is at wearecasa.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.